Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and like the rest of the world, I woke up on April 15th to the site of Notre Dame Cathedral burning. I had some other ideas in mind for my next podcast episode, but after the entire world seemed to stop to watch the world's most famous cathedral crumble, it seemed absurd to want to talk about anything else. But I wasn't sure how to approach it. There's so much I didn't know. I've been to Notre Dame, of course, and I took the opportunity to climb up to the bell tower. My favorite spot in the whole city was actually that little park right behind Notre Dame. When I first moved to France as a 19-year-old girl, there were lonely afternoons when I'd just sit on the swings in the park and I'd listen to the lonely tolling of the bells. Notre Dame Cathedral has always been a given, an assumed part of the landscape, an anchor of stability for me in a changing world. It wasn't until I began digging into the history of Notre Dame that this vision began to change. What I've learned reshaped my understanding of Notre Dame, and it brought me great peace while I think about the future of the cathedral. As you'll learn in the episodes to come, Notre Dame herself has always been a patchwork quilt. Every cathedral on earth, by its very nature, is a series of accretions, of historical deposits building up one on top of the other like so many layers of sediment in a canyon. Weather erodes, history disrupts, violence injures, and peace rebuilds. What stands out more clearly than ever is that Notre Dame de Paris is truly that, of Paris. Much more so than the Catholic Church, more so than the nation of France, Notre Dame is bound up in the fate of her home city. So, for the next few episodes, we'll be traveling through time, taking a bit of an unorthodox journey. Rather than droning through 800 years of architectural history, I'll be skipping around to the most important interactions between Notre Dame and her hometown. At each point, I'll try to paint a picture of Paris as she was at that time and the Notre Dame that she would have known. Change by change, disaster by miracle, making our way up to now, to the Notre Dame we have, smoking and injured and beautiful and beloved, as we dream and plan of the Paris and the Notre Dame that will be. In the spring of 1051, Princess Anna of Kiev sailed to Paris to meet her future husband. Anna was the favorite daughter of Yaroslav the Wise, a great and learned leader of the East, and she represented the best that European civilization had to offer at the dawn of the second millennium. In an age of limited literacy, Anna was sophisticated and well-educated. She could read and write, discuss world history and mathematics, she was an accomplished artist, and she could speak several languages fluently. In order for Yaroslav to part with his most beloved child, any suitor would have to be hot stuff. For the last 400 years, the former territory of Gaul had been more attractive to marauding bands of Visigoths and Vikings than it had been to world leaders. 
Every 50 years or so, just as the area recovered from the last invasion and rebuilt its burned-out huts and sacked cities, another invader would arrive ready to sack, pillage, burn, and move on. But at long last, it seemed like the area's luck was turning. A series of dim-witted, crude, but stationary leaders had managed to fend off the Vikings and unite the loyalty of what little leadership there was at the time. After establishing this bare minimum of stability, those leaders were phased out and they were replaced by a different kind of leader, a reasonably educated and civilized warrior with a new title that implied a new kind of people, the King of the Franks. Note that we're not talking about a king of France here. There was no such thing as France just yet. Just a bunch of territories centered around a series of islands nestled in the banks of the Seine River. But there was promise, or else Anna of Kiev's father would never have sent her over. Anna's fiancé, Henry I, seemed like a man on the rise. His grandfather was the first king of the Franks, and he had helped unite all those squabbling local territories into a single kingdom. Henry's father, Robert II, had reigned for 35 years, most of which had been spent acquiring more and more lands. So the Frankish territory was the kind of land that you would call full of potential, a fixer-upper with good bones. But Anna, raised in the flourishing, sophisticated courts of Eastern Europe, was unimpressed. Surveying the swampy marshland of her new home, she wrote to her father that the Frankish territories were a barbarous country, where the houses were gloomy, the churches ugly, and the customs revolting. But the times were a-changin'. Like Princess Anna herself, the rest of Europe was getting to know Paris, her leaders, her trade routes, and her customs. The land may have been swampy, but that was only because it was surrounded by so much water, and the water was carrying in people, goods, and ideas from around the known world. And these people, goods, and ideas would transform this little Gallic outpost of Paris into the capital of a new, thriving Western European civilization. Within 100 years of Princess Anna's arrival, this barbarous country would stake its claim for cultural relevance with a daring, innovative, and awe-inspiring project. A cathedral fit for a king. Even before the Romans arrived and founded the first stable little colony on its banks, the Ile de France always attracted attention. The Seine is a remarkable river. It's connected to the Channel. It's also connected to a vast network of other rivers flowing in every rich direction. But most importantly, the Seine is deep, with flat bottoms, making it easy for even really heavy ships filled with goods to float downstream without running aground. The Ile de France, right in the middle of those deep waters, quickly became a center of a vast trading network and the home of all those who participated in that network. When Princess Anne arrived, the Ile de France was already starting to grow and it made up the center of a city now called Paris. A few decades later, 
Paris was bursting at the seams. Walking around the Ile de France, a Parisian would have seen merchants loading and unloading the arriving ships, abbots and monks from the nearby churches, students arguing and getting drunk, fishmongers yelling from market stalls, blacksmiths hammering out horseshoes, bakers struggling not to burn down the neighborhood, prostitutes, beggars, and butchers chasing wild pigs down the street. All of these people and more came together in an impossibly loud, impossibly smelly crowd. Parisians completely overwhelmed what municipal resources there were really quickly, and any major event became cause for alarm because someone was always getting crushed by the crowds. It's little wonder, then, that in 1147, Princess Anne of Kiev's great-grandson, Louis VII, craved a little fresh air. Louis was never supposed to be king. His older brother, Philip, was heir to the throne, and he acted like it. Philip was the golden child, definitely his dad's favorite, and he grew up into a spoiled brat. As he began taking on some of the burdens of the aging king, Philip let his growing powers go straight to his head. As one 13th century historian recalled, Philip, by his overweening pride and tyrannical arrogance, made himself a burden to all. Ouch. Louis, on the other hand, was a quiet, reserved, and very devout young man who really wanted nothing more than a life of contemplation in the church. But they don't call it the heir and the spare for nothing. In 1137, Philip and his friends were riding around in a busy marketplace area which is now occupied by the Hotel de Ville. In a truly medieval moment, a big black pig rooting around in a dung heap wandered into the path of Philip's horse. Taken by surprise, Philip's horse freaked out and Philip flew into the air and was dead the next morning. All of a sudden, Louis's plans for peaceful reflection went out the window, and he found himself crowned the newest King of the Franks. On paper, Louis VII had everything going for him. As one historian summed things up, Louis VII inherited from his father a united kingdom at peace with itself and abroad, sound finances, and skilled administrators. A pretty far cry from those bands of small-time warriors fighting with one another and everyone else only a few hundred years ago. All Louis needed to do was maintain his father's legacy of sound, educated ruling with a focus on developing his abilities to support the nation through common resources and peace. He'd been well-educated, and he had the good sense to hang on to his father's wise old advisor, the abbot Suger. There was only one problem. Louis was a quiet, mild-mannered young man with a strong religious bent, and he had just married the most unsuitable woman in Europe, Eleanor of Aquitaine. I could spend hours talking about Eleanor of Aquitaine. She's one of those truly great women of history whose personality shines through even the most boring illuminated manuscripts of the past. 
When she was born, Eleanor was the Duchess of Aquitaine, which was then a separate territory in the southwest and definitely not subject to the King of the Franks. Aquitaine was dazzlingly rich, and Eleanor was one of the wealthiest, most powerful women in Europe at the time. But it isn't her money that keeps her in the history books nearly a millennia later. Rich people are usually pretty boring. No, Eleanor was hungry. She was hungry for knowledge and art and real independent power, and she was hungry for control over her own affairs. Remember Louis's great-grandmother, Princess Anna of Kiev? She would have gotten along with Eleanor real well. Eleanor's education represented the beginning of a miniature renaissance that was then sweeping the European continent. Eleanor knew math, astronomy, history, embroidery and weaving, playing the harp, riding horses, hunting with hawks, and she was well-read in a variety of languages. She came from a long line of artistic patrons. If you remember our past episode on the language of Auk, I actually read a few lines of poetry composed by Eleanor's grandfather, William IX, who was called the Troubadour Duke. More importantly, Eleanor was, by every account of the age, a pip. She was a firecracker. She had a mind of her own, and she wasn't afraid to use it. Unfortunately for Eleanor, she was destined to marry Europe's most eligible dish rag. When Eleanor was around 12 years old, her father went off on a trip. Before he left, he made a will in case something terrible happened, like in case he ran into one of those murderous pigs roaming free, terrorizing the nobles of France. Back in the 1100s, an eligible bachelorette like Eleanor was a target for kidnappers. Anyone lucky enough to spirit away an heiress would actually gain control over her lands. You would not believe how many years and daughters it took for Europe to change their inheritance laws to fix that. To keep the target off of young Eleanor's back, her father specified that should anything happen to him, Louis VI, King of the Franks, would be in charge of her marriage and inheritance. Well, Eleanor's father actually ended up dying on that trip, and when his men arrived to tell Louis VI the good, uh, terrible news, it's said that Louis VI managed to keep from cheering until just after the messengers left the room. In only a few months, Eleanor and the king's son, Louis VII, were wed in an elaborate ceremony. There was an important clause in their wedding vows. Aquitaine was still technically an independent territory. But when Eleanor and Louis's oldest son became king, only then would Aquitaine officially become part of the Frankish territories. Spoiler alert, Louis is going to regret that prenup. Anyway, a few weeks later, Eleanor and Louis's honeymoon was interrupted by the death of the king. The brand new king and queen moved down to Paris to begin what looked to be a rich and glorious rule. Right from the beginning, Eleanor drove the courts insane. If any of you watch Game of Thrones, think Alaria Sand from Dorne making her way into King's Landing. Here comes this high-spirited woman from the South, bold and independent and apparently a scandalous dresser. 
all the old men of the church disapproved of Eleanor deeply, and it's not hard to figure out why. Within a few years of their marriage, it became clear that Louis VII was leaning on his most capable wife's shoulders for advice instead of their own. The young king, who had always been known as a retiring type, all of a sudden began making some pretty uncharacteristic moves. When Eleanor's younger sister wanted to make a very, very troublesome marriage, King Louis VII approved it. When Eleanor hated the cold draft palace, Louis poured money into it. And most faithfully, Louis began trying to take power and control away from the church's officials, only a few years after he had dreamed of being a priest himself. Eventually, the pious Louis managed to get himself into a fight with the Pope, and after a series of terrible, stupid, unsuccessful wars, Louis felt guilty about the whole mess. He'd spent a lot of money. He'd broken the peace he had inherited from his father. He was in bad tidings with the church. And to top things off, Eleanor had recently given birth to their first child, a daughter. This being the 12th century, if you were a king in a bit of a pickle with the Pope, there was one natural way to make things right again. It is time to lead a crusade. When you're leading a crusade, you need a leader with a fiery spirit, a clear sense of purpose, a willingness to get one's hands dirty, and a strategic military mind. The Franks marching to the Middle East had a leader with all of these qualities. Eleanor Eleanor carried golden crosses through Europe, raised her own troops from Aquitaine and led them to the battle, and dazzled the courts of Constantinople. Eleanor attracted attention, praise, awe, and envy across most of the known world. And then there was Louis. Imagine someone who spent his entire life in his older brother's shadow, quietly studying for the priesthood, thrust into the front of a crusading army halfway around the world. Louis VII performed as well as you would expect. He was a mess. He blew it on the battlefield a hundred times over. Louis's crusade brought misery and suffering, and not just to the locals. Is there any greater stress test for a relationship than a long journey? By the end of the road trip or the backpacking excursion or whatever, you've gotten to know your partner more intimately than you ever wished to. And the two of you are either bonded for life or you're actively plotting one another's death. Guess which one applied to Louis and Eleanor? Returning to Paris, basically empty-handed and embarrassed, with nothing to show for all that money and trouble but an enormous number of dead Parisians, the royal couple called it quits. As soon as Eleanor and Louis returned to Paris, they asked the Pope to annul their marriage. The Pope refused, and he forced them to sleep in the same bed, which is a pretty tall order for a couple who had just sailed back from the Crusades on separate ships. All they got out of that order was, you guessed it, another daughter. With the birth of the second daughter, everyone threw up their hands, the marriage was annulled, and Eleanor flounced out of Paris, taking the vast riches of Aquitaine with her and presumably high-fiving her lawyer on the way out. 
Eleanor was strong-willed and rich. She didn't suffer fools, and she had big dreams that needed the right kind of king to see them through. So, in a major flex, Eleanor crossed the English Channel, evaded not one, but two lords trying to kidnap her for her lands, and she married Louis's greatest rival, Henry, the future king of England. Henry was a good-looking ginger who was full of energy, well-educated, and ambitious. I couldn't find a record of Louis VII's reaction to the marriage, but I'm gonna assume it involved a lot of Drake albums. But Eleanor wasn't done yet. In a stunning blow, Eleanor hit her ex right where it really hurts. A year after her wedding, Eleanor delivered a son. He would eventually be the first of not one, not two, not three, not four, but five sons for Henry of England. It's no surprise the husbands went to war. And yes, it was a stupid war, as you would expect. Remember, Paris is cramped, hungry, tired of being asked to fight in crusades, and now they gotta fight the king's ex-wife. It was a lot of really stupid slap fighting, until Louis eventually returned home with nothing to show for his efforts except a nasty cold. Unsurprisingly, after the failure of his crusade, and the failure of his marriage, and the failure of his war against his greatest enemy, Louis decided it was time to spend a little more time with God. The Abbot Suget, leader of the Abbey of Saint-Denis, trusted advisor of Louis VII and his father, is one of those remarkable, efficient bureaucrats who pops up throughout history, carefully outlasting all his bosses, managing large-scale projects, and pushing his agenda quietly, relentlessly, and effectively. As one tribute put it, the abbot, who was, quote, small in physical and social stature, driven by his dual smallness, refused, in his smallness, to be small. Considering young Louis's passion for the church, that surprise pig in the marketplace must have been a massive stroke of luck for the abbot. Instead of the arrogant upstart Philip on the throne, he got pious, malleable Louis instead. Never slow on the uptake, the abbot was there at Louis's wedding to Eleanor, and the abbot was there at the crusade. During the reign of Louis VI and VII, Abbot Suger used his influence to push for a series of important church projects, especially the construction of a new cathedral for his abbey in Saint-Denis. Saint-Denis, located a few miles outside Paris itself, was the most important religious site in the Frankish lands. The abbey housed the fanciest religious relics in Louis' kingdom, and the abbey served as school and burial site of every king of the Franks since the 10th century. Each time another king was buried on the grounds of Saint-Denis, the link between the church and the state grew stronger. Back in the day, Louis VI had gone so far as to declare Saint-Denis the patron saint of the Frankish kingdom. Well, the abbot suggested, if this is your kingdom's patron saint, why not give him the church he deserves? Because the Abbey of Saint-Denis was a mess. 
chaos reigned. Abbot Suger wrote of the inadequacy we often felt on special days, such as the feast of the Blessed Denis, the fair, and many other times when the narrowness of the place forced women to run to the altar on the heads of men with great anguish and confusion. When women weren't riding piggyback to the altar, they were fainting during services. When the monks brought out those fancy holy relics, the crowds would press so close the abbots would have to climb out the window to escape. Receiving the go-ahead, the visionary Abbot Suger set to work creating an awesome vision, a church which incorporated all the newest ideas about architecture then floating around in educated circles, ideas which would eventually coalesce into that most famous architectural style to emerge from France, the Gothic. Abbot Suger didn't just need more room on the ground for his parishioners. He needed more room overhead for God. In the 12th century, influential church leaders like the Abbot Suger believed that any kind of light was equivalent to God's own divine light. The more light you could fit in your church, the more blessed it would be. Drawing on all the architectural advancements of the age, Abbot Suger built a cathedral which was tall, grand, and most importantly, full of light. In 1144, Abbot Suger hosted a lavish dedication ceremony for his new cathedral, and he invited every other bishop to look upon his masterpiece and presumably feel really jealous. Imagine all the pomp and circumstance the church and state can muster. A building taller than anything else, music from an ethereal choir floating up into a ceiling that feels a million miles away, and the sunlight streaming in through enormous windows, dazzling a bunch of men who spend most of their days in rooms lit by candles. The new cathedral in Saint-Denis must have felt truly miraculous to 12th century believers. Abbot Suger's plan worked. All those bishops went back home and started building Gothic cathedrals of their own, each one grander than the last. As the Bishop of Seville instructed his architect, build a church so great that those who come after will deem us mad to have attempted it. Imitation was the sincerest form of flattery, and soon a new imitation would break ground right in the heart of Paris. Back when Anna of Kiev first landed on the swampy shores of Paris, the power of the church was concentrated in the countryside, where vast monasteries produced scholars and leaders and agricultural goods. But Louis VII grew up in an age of urban wealth, where the docks and the marketplace held sway, and the city's bishops held more power than the countryside's abbots. Louis VII had attended Abbot Suger's dedication of Saint-Denis shortly after his marriage to Eleanor. Like everyone else, the newlywed king had been amazed by the Gothic style, with all of its glittering, holy light. Twenty years later, the Abbot Suger had passed away, power had concentrated in the cities, and the Abbey of Saint-Denis was too far from the action. By the end of Louis's marriage to Eleanor, Paris's population hovered around 100,000 people. 
While it was totally overshadowed by the million residents of Constantinople out east, Paris had grown into the largest city in Western Europe, and it felt like it. Paris wasn't only big, it was powerful. Louis's ancestors did such a great job acquiring lands and establishing political stability that Paris was finally able to exploit all of those trade routes on land and on water. Business was booming, the population was growing, and the most powerful political and religious leaders in Louis's realm spent more time than ever in the city. If the Abbey of Saint-Denis had been crowded, the churches on the Ile de France were about to explode. It was the perfect opportunity for a broken king looking to get right with God. In 1160, two events of note took place. Maurice de Sully was elected the Bishop of Paris, and Louis VII's second wife, Catherine, died in childbirth, having produced two more daughters. With his crusades, his reputation, and his line of succession in ruins, Louis needed a way to atone. He looked out his windows at the filthy, packed streets of Paris and thought, why not start in my own backyard? Louis had successfully cleared the streets of pigs, he wasn't taking any chances of ending up like his brother, but otherwise, every inch of the Ile de France was more crowded than ever, including the island's oldest church, the ancient, crumbling church of St. Stephen. When it was originally constructed around the year 600, the church of St. Stephen would have been considered enormous. But after half a millennium of population growth and erosion, St. Stephen's was just no longer up to the task. A few years earlier, the Pope stopped by Paris to conduct a mass. King Louis's men set out a silk carpet for the Pope's arrival, only for the Pope's men to assume it was a gift. It was for keepsies, right? In the crowded, overheated, noisy cathedral, the King's men and the Pope's men argued about the carpet until, according to witnesses, from words they came to blows, the cannons fell upon the Pope's officers so rudely that several of them were hurt. Louis himself was one of the ones who was injured. So it makes sense that when the newly elected Bishop of Paris met with the newly depressed King of the Franks, both of them remembered that day and shuddered. Yes, surely this is guidance from the divine. If a candelabra to the royal forehead isn't enough to point you in the right direction, what is? Bishop Sully pointed out the glory of Saint-Denis and the copycat cathedrals it had inspired throughout the countryside and said, Doesn't Paris herself deserve such a fine cathedral? Shouldn't the capital city of your realm display the might of your wealth and power? Shouldn't Paris be outshining the suburbs? Whatever he said, it did the trick on pious King Louis VII, and Bishop Sully received the go-ahead to plan a cathedral of his own on the Ile de France. In the spring of 1163, a new pope was in town. Eager to wash the memory of that fateful silk carpet from their memory, King Louis VII and Bishop Sully invited the new pope 
over to the construction site, where the Pope laid the cornerstone of a great and glorious tribute to Virgin Mary, a cathedral which would declare Paris once and for all a center of Christian faith and pilgrimage, a monument which would get Louis back in literal good graces, the Cathedral of Notre-Dame de Paris. It worked! Within two years, Louis received a sign that he was finally back in the Lord's favor. Here's an excerpt from the diary of a student living in Paris and at the time. The author of this work leaped to the window from the couch on which he had stretched himself and fallen into his first sleep, and looking out, he saw two very poor old women in the street bearing torches and exulting with joy. And when he inquired of them the cause of such commotion and exultation, one of them immediately looked up at him and replied, We have now a king given to us by God. At long last, Louis's third wife gave him a son and heir, Philippe Auguste. He would be the leader of the first golden age of Paris and the world's very first king of France. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. Next week, I'll post part two of this series in which Louis's son, the great Philippe Auguste, first king of France, grows up alongside the new cathedral of Paris. No one will do more to transform the face of Paris than Philippe Auguste, and he'll set the stage for his grandson, Louis IX, Saint-Louis, who will lead Paris through a golden century before disaster strikes. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a thank you to my newest Patreon supporters, Franny, Renee, Amanda, Catherine, and Mike. I'd also like to say hello to all the new fans of the Land of Desires Facebook page. You picked a good time to start following us online, because I have a very exciting personal announcement. Next week's episode represents an opportunity I have never had before. For the first time, I will be updating the Land of Desire from Paris. That's right, your podcast host is taking her biggest fan on a tour of Paris. After listening to every episode and being a very good cheerleader, I figured it was time my mother got to experience Paris for herself. We'll be waving to a number of familiar sites from previous episodes, so keep an eye out on the Land of Desire's Facebook page and Twitter. We'll say hello to Napoleon's portrait in the Louvre. We'll eat snails. Yes, Mom, we're going to eat snails at a brasserie. And of course, we will pay our respects at Notre Dame, still standing strong. Until next time, au revoir!